Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books in the American West, a channel on the New Books Network of Podcasts. I am Stephen Hausman, and I'm your host for today's interview. And for this episode, I'm speaking with Dr. Stephen Aaron. Dr. Aaron is Professor Emeritus of History at UCLA and is the President and CEO of the Autry Museum of the American West in Los Angeles. He is also a decorated scholar of the American West, author of many books and articles, and is a former president of the Western History Association. And today we're going to be discussing his latest book, Peace and Friendship an alternative history of the American West, which came out last year in 2022 with Oxford University Press. Uh, Thank you for joining me today, Steve. Good to have you here. A pleasure to be here. Why don't we start, as we always do on the New Books Network, by just hearing a little bit about you and who you are. Tell us a bit about your background. And what I'm really interested in is how you became uh, involved and interested in history and the history of the West specifically. Okay, well, um, like many people who become involved in history, I started as a history major uh, and then made my way to Berkeley uh, for my doctoral education. And there I studied colonial and early American history. Uh, And really, that was how I thought of myself as a colonialist and an early Americanist, at least at the start of my career. Um, My first job was at Princeton, uh, where they had already a well-established colonialist on the faculty. And they sort of said, well, what else might you want to teach? And I said, well, I'm interested in frontiers. uh, So maybe I could teach a history of the American West course. And indeed, the that first course I taught on the history of the American West was, I guess, the first course I took on the history of the American West. But having taught it and taken it, I fell in love with it. Uh, and in some ways, the history of colonial colonial history leads readily to colonialism, uh, and colonialism and frontiers and borderlands led me west. Uh, and I've sort of headed that direction. I guess the other part of it that's equally surprising in in terms of my career trajectory is how I ended up as the president uh, and director of a Western history museum and a Western or a museum of the American West. Um, Again, my training, I had no training in museum studies, um, but I kind of, as with other things, I guess, it it sort of fell my way uh, and, and that's become my way now. Uh, And we can talk more about that maybe at the end of the podcast. I'm curious also what brought you to the topic of this book specifically. And we can talk more about uh, uh, about the sort of the, the interesting take on the history of the West that, that you have here, but what's the genesis of this particular work? So actually, the you know, I'd been teaching um, and writing about the history of the American West for a couple, several decades. Um, and the previous book that I had written was part of the Oxford University Press's very short introduction series. They had asked me to write the American West volume for the very short introduction series. You may have seen these, or you may even have interviewed someone who's who's been a contributor because there are literally hundreds and hundreds of volumes in this very short introduction series. The gist of which is that in 35,000 words, and they really are quite strict at Oxford University Press about that 35,000 word limit, you are supposed to distill for general readers, um, as well as an academic readers, but general readership, the kind of people who, went at, and you often see these books at airport bookstores, you know, want to pick up a book that they can digest, that they can read um, in the course of a flight, maybe even from Minnesota to Portland, um, and come away with a kind of working knowledge of a subject. And as I say, these are on all manner of things. Indeed, uh, the joke I like to tell is, um, there, one of the volumes in the series is called Nothing, and it's, I guess, a study of the concept of nothing. Um, and my original draft of my volume had come in at about 70,000 words, and I, they said, well, you only have 35,000. And I said, but come on, I'm writing a much bigger subject than what you think, because my American West, you know, dates back to long before it was a West and long before it was American. Um, and I'm studying the whole continent and so on and so forth. And they said, and, sh- and then I said, surely um, the author of nothing had a few extra words to lend me. Um, but then they I pointed me further in the direction, the joke I tell uh, of the other volumes in the series, one of which is uh, the meaning of life. Um, and I guess, again, if you could do the meaning of life in 35,000 words, you can do the American West in 35,000 <laughs> words. So distill I did and get it down to 35,000. But that really was my effort um, to distill what I thought was a story of 
how the West became a West and how it became an American West. Um, and, you know, telling that story as kind of the mainstream history, a mainstream history that especially over the last several decades has inverted its once triumphalist account of the winning of the West, and in some ways has now become a story in which the governing words and governing constructs are conquest, ethnic cleansing, genocide, violence, bloodshed being, you know, sort of the centerpiece of the way in which Western history is now taught and thought about. And I really, I think in that volume of the very short introduction, I tried to tell that story and distill the decades of recent scholarship into that 35,000 word version. But at the same time, as I was writing that book, um, I had been thinking for a long time about um, the other sides of that story that really went beyond or, or cut against the grain of that, um, of that mainstream. Uh, and that led me to what I call an alternative history of the American West premised on uh, peace and friendship or moments of peace and friendship. The, the title coming from uh, uh, the medals that uh, American emissaries gifted to Indian leaders uh, with which often carried the inscription peace and friendship on them. Uh, and so that led me to, to write this new book. Well, I want to ask you about that word alternative, about about the, this this title, um, because this word alternative is actually it's a pretty operative word in, in what you're doing here. And you really make clear in the introduction of the book that this is not an alternate history, right? That this is an alternative history and that that little if right there, that matters a great deal. So what's the difference that we're talking about here? Why an alternative history? What sets it apart from what some of my listeners might know of, of its alternate history? Right. So I get in trouble because, um, as I point out in the book's introduction, if you Google alternative history, it leads you automatically to alternate history. So Google uh, conflates the two terms. And alternate history is that genre, which is enormously popular, but I don't think it's really history, um, which is the genre of what if. Um, you know, it's playing off against, I guess, the fancy academic version is counterfactual speculation. The more popular version is and the most popular titles of which there are thousands and thousands are what if the South had won the Civil War? What if the Nazis had won the Second World War? But there are also lots of ones that play off various Western issues, often with Custer. What if Custer had da 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 or so on and so forth? But the history that I was interested in writing was not divorced from what really happened. The alternative history that I had in mind was playing off the type of the meaning of alternative as something that runs counter to the mainstream in some way. Uh, and in that sense, if the mainstream history of the American West had been now told as a story of violence, bloodshed, conquest, ethnic cleansing, genocide, I was interested in an alternative to that mainstream, which led me down the currents uh, towards worlds of peace and friendship, or at least places and times across the history of the American West where people managed to overcome their differences as opposed to being overcome by those differences. Uh, and for at least for a time, managed to construct more or less peaceful, if not always fully friendly relations. And trying to understand then in these particular moments and at these particular places and times, why people were able to overcome those differences, um, how these relations came apart and, and sort of developed, why they fell apart, how we have, remembered or misremembered, oftentimes by another term I coined in the book, um, this, how we turn some of these stories into what I call wish-deries, mm -hmm. histories that we wish for, again, which is in some ways playing to the alternate history genre as opposed to what really happened, um, creating these kind of happily ever after stories in these moments, as opposed to the moments and places and times that I study where these relations get established, but they, in various durations, fall apart. Uh, and then trying to understand how they fall apart. Uh, and still, though, what lessons we might take from these stories that cut against the mainstream grain. 
I took this book in many ways to be an argument against inevitability, a, a way of saying, you know, there are these other directions that things may have gone in, and there's these moments of uh, of contingency, right, where the future is still uncertain. And you, in the book, and we'll talk a bit more about this, you kind of dive into these moments and see what led to them. Why are these such kind of rich moments in history for exploring this idea of, of alternative alternativeness, I guess I can say. Well, both to alternativeness and, as you say, contingency, because right. that was actually something. And look, I've gotten... There's a lot of questions that I think legitimately can be raised. How contingent were these moments? I do certainly think, uh, and I wrote about this, including in the very short introduction, that we do ourselves a disservice as historians when we play into the idea of history, to borrow from 19th century American phrasing, when we treat history as if it was manifestly destined, right. um, as if this expansion happened the way it did and that was the way it had to happen because of these overwhelming forces or factors and instead i think um what i was interested in though is not trying to create a wishery of paradises lost but to create a history that focused on possibilities lost uh and i think that's um how i tried to sort of push the story the the stories and the history that i that i talk about in the book yeah well, let's get into some of these some of these stories a bit. And you actually start the book in the the very old American West, right? When it you know the American West is what today we think of as like you know the the Eastern Midwest, basically. And you start the story with Daniel Boone in the Shawnee village of Chillicothe. So, what is this story? And as you tell it, how does it present one of these alternative moments, one of these alternative histories of the West? So, first, um, I've long you know, been a student of frontiers and the sense that um, that the West we know today was not the West that earlier Americans understood as the West. And so, you know, if we're telling the story of the making of an American West or the making of American Wests, we, we, we should follow that geography as it shifts. Uh, and the chronology uh, in that sense changes too, in terms of when things become American and when they become a West. In the case of what I think of as the first American West, that is the first West of the United States, that takes us to the turf in which Daniel Boone played, and it takes us to the revolution. Uh, and it moves us in the first chapter to the story of Daniel Boone's captivity and adoption by Shawnee Indians that take him and a number of his fellow Kentucky pioneers to the Shawnee village of Chillicothe, where Boone is adopted and spends several months. Um, and in which I argue that he is given the opportunity by that adoption to cross over. Uh, and the Shawnees basically invite him and others to live as one people with them. Now, you can we can debate about how realistic that invitation was, how many people were going to take it. But I do believe for Boone in particular, as well as for a number of his Confederates, the attractions of woodland Indian life, the attractions of the Shawnees, as it was for many Anglo-American captives in this era was a powerful one, that the lifestyle, the culture of the Shawnees was especially appealing, especially to someone like Daniel Boone, whose uh, interest in hunting uh, sort of separated him from those who wanted to turn everyone into yeoman farmers. Um, in any case, I would argue for a variety of reasons, Boone is tempted by the offer and invitation of the Shawnees, especially because I think this is a world in which this is all taking place in the context of the American Revolution, in which I would argue that national and imperial attachments matter much less than local and familial ones uh, and lifestyle choices. Uh, so the, the attraction and the lore is quite powerful. And a number of Boone's, uh, several of Boone's fellow captives who are also adapted, do decide to stay uh, for, a, for a longer period among the Shawnees. Boone ultimately um, gives up that opportunity, uh, escapes and returns to Boonesboro, but even then still, I think, has a certain degree of ambivalence about his larger attachments um, and a certain degree of regret about how things play out. And I think that sets up for me this critical moment right at the heart of the American Revolution where Boone's decision, I think, opens up, has larger implications for the course of, of not just the American Revolution, but about the ways in which this first West will or will not become American. Um, and that's the larger story that I try to tell there. And it connects then to the subsequent chapter, which is about Apple Creek, Missouri, 
where many of the people who had been uh, living in Kentucky as American pioneers there or living in Chillicothe, Ohio among the Shawnees retreat and end up settling alongside one another in what is then Spanish Louisiana, a place that Daniel Boone also uh, retreats to when he loses all his land in Kentucky during the 1790s. And it's that place in the 1790s under Spanish rule in a, what was still principally a French colony, but wow. in which numbers of American refugees from Kentucky and Tennessee and numbers of Ohio Indian refugees um, from the Ohio Valley take, um, sort of remove themselves to, and quite surprisingly, end up living alongside one another for some period uh, harmoniously uh, and in a blending and blurring of cultures there. That's all the more remarkable when you think about that a decade before these people had been engaged in a uh, horrific and str struggle over what becomes what they call the dark and bloody ground of the Ohio Valley during the revolution. And mm -hmm. so that becomes then the sort of sequel story that further amplifies just how tempting the possibilities were that a decade later um, in Missouri, or what is now Missouri, or what was then upper Louisiana, part of S S Spanish Louisiana, um, uh, that they are able to sort of find common ground uh, is, I think, a remarkable story that suggests, again, the possibilities in play. And then I try to explain how that common ground gets established. What are the factors that are in play and in place that allow people to overcome the, their past histories, their past differences, uh, and then why that doesn't last um, much past the early decades of the 19th century. Right, and and we'll we'll return to 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 Missouri to Apple Creek in in a little bit. And we'll talk about the kind of the, the second half, you know, the the as you said, kind of the the sequel to this Apple Creek story. But as you said before, throughout this story, you're kind of you're following American settlers as they settle west. And there's a part in the middle of the book where we make a bit of a jump as we follow the Lewis and Clark expedition as they go, you know, past Missouri, right past this kind of further western point, further into. The West and Lewis and Clark. This 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 story is often told in the kind of as you said wish story sort of way as this moment of American triumphalism, right? Or as this moment of looming inevitable colonialism, right? And you again try to use this as a way of looking at alternatives. So how does the question of distance in terms of, of Lewis and Clark, you know, physical distance as well as cultural and social distance, how does this story of this expedition speak to another one of these alternative histories in the early 19th century West? And again, I think partly the, what I was sort of, when I started thinking about Lewis and Clark, I also, you know, came back to the bicentennial hoopla around that expedition, which was really quite remarkable. I mean, we're coming up now and and at the Autry Museum, we're putting together a major exhibition, rethinking what the 250th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence will look like, especially from a Western perspective. Um, because after all, the Continental Congress or the Second Continental Congress was anything but continental, even as they pretended themselves to have such a perspective. In any case, for Lewis and Clark, what, what struck me was how remarkable during the 200th anniversary celebration of that expedition, how it, the new wishery that was told about the Lewis and Clark really told it as a multicultural eco feel-good story that sort of stood in contrast to the um to the there was the older version which as you said was either you know just a heroic venture west but one that as you said sort of ushers the way or prepares the way for the american manifest destiny heading west um but the newer version you know, which I thought was quite striking in terms of the newer wishery, what it tells about our, what we're wishing for, as opposed to was this kinder, gentler frontier origin story in which Lewis and Clark, often told as a foursome, because it's Lewis and Clark and Sacagawea and York, um, sort of meet and mingle with Indians along the way and have this, you know, remarkably peaceful encounter across the continent, culminating in this, what they get to the Pacific coast to Fort Clatsop, which becomes the focus of my point, where my story, where they, again, continue these peaceful relations. They spend the winter of 1805, 1806 uh, among the Clatsop Indians uh, and neighboring Indians there. But the way the wishery story especially is told is that um, the moment that Lewis and Clark are deciding what side of the Columbia River 
this has got to be a familiar story to those of you in Portland, uh, <laughs> what side of the Columbia River they're going to establish their winter quarters. And they allow all of the members of the Corps of Discovery to vote, including York, Clark's African-American slave, and Sacagawea, the Indian woman who had accompanied them, the wife of Toussaint Charbonneau, who accompanies them as an interpreter and guide. Um, and you know the way that story gets told during the bicentennial gets turned into this remarkable moment, glimpse at American democratic possibilities here. Now, I want to look more closely at what really happened at Klatsov, and it defies these kind of historical, um, you know, kind of grandeur. Um, but nonetheless, even if it doesn't live up to the kind of quite the feel-good story that we came to tell about that part of the expedition, it and most of the journey give us a sense of the ways in which Lewis and Clark, the farther they travel from the centers of American power, the weaker they are, the better they become in some ways as diplomats, or the more they need to find ways to get along with Indians, and the more dependent they are on Indian guidance and Indian gifts and Indian goods to make their way across the continent, and the more they have to learn in some ways to accommodate. Now, by no means am I trying to suggest that, that they are such really able diplomats. And indeed, there's a lot of good fortune that goes into allowing them to make their way peacefully across the continent and to establish peace and friendship as the medals they bestow on Indian leaders proclaim with Indians. But it is still remarkable that how, how little violence there is along the way mm -hmm. um, and how much out of necessity there is. But that's part of the larger story that I'm telling in other stories, that so long as Americans are traveling across and not simply settling, so long as Americans are principally in, interested in trade and not in settlement, there are better conditions. And so long as there's a balance of power in terms of numbers or balance of powerlessness or also a weak imperial or national state presence, it tends to foster these kind of accommodations and these kind of peaceful arrangements. Um, my argument in many cases is that once, and this actually runs counter to the way in which I think a lot of our Western stories are told. We typically say that it's the entrance of the state that brings, or the nation, the powerful nation or imperial entities that bring um, law and order to what had been Hobbesian hells of frontiers where you just had chaos and violence. I'm arguing quite the contrary. In many cases where I look, um, actually the weakness of the state and the relative weakness of local entities forces people to find accommodations or at least contains and curbs the level of violence. By contrast, when more powerful nation states enter, they often undermine or disrupt, uh, or imperial entities, they undermine or disrupt the local arrangements that had contained or curbed violence, and they, they allow violence to be escalated. They undo the existing arrangements and they, and they lead to um, the escalation of bloodshed and violence. They, they undermine, and, and I think, again, that runs counter to one of the sort of familiar stories we tell in thousands and thousands of Western movies where, it's the entrance of the army or the entrance of the sheriff, the duly constituted law enforcement agencies that finally bring law and order and peace to, you know, formerly uh, much more disruptive, disruptive and violent places. Well, let's talk about a moment when uh, this when when one of these alternatives kind of tends more toward uh, that, that that sort of, if not violence, at least it, it kind of falls apart of it. Let's return to Apple Creek in, in Missouri. Later on in the 19th century, you return to this place, again, to illustrate a path not taken. So what becomes of Apple Creek? What happens here after we leave it behind at the start of the 19th century? And how does this place and this moment in this place tie together a lot of the themes and a lot of the characters that we've encountered in the book so far? So again, under Spanish rule, and even in the first decade of American rule, I think those conditions that I described a moment ago, where you don't have a particularly strong colonial or national or imperial entity in place, you have a relative balance of numbers. You also have the presence in the case of Americans and 
Shawnee and Delaware Indians, Ohio Indians in, in and around Apple Creek, the presence of a common foe, in this case, the Osage Indians or Osage Indians that sort of bind them together. Those conditions tend to, as I say, create um, the, the, the factors that you want to see in place that allow these peaceful arrangements and harmonious relations uh, to be set. By contrast, really after the War of 1812, you get a tremendous immigration of Americans into the territory, into what is now the Missouri Territory after the War of 1812, triples the population in a matter of uh, the, the settler population in a matter of a of, of few years. And that completely undermines the balances of, or, uh, balances of power and powerlessness. Uh, it also leads to, uh, uh, there's a much power American state now in present that is no longer threatened in the same way by imperial rivals or even by Indians in the region. Uh, that, and then the demands of settlers um, to sort of want, who no longer are interested in trading with Indians, but are interested only in the lands of Indians, that you get what we see more as the kind of classic settler colonial imperative being put in place where you know, their demand is only to have Indians displaced. Uh, and they have no real recollection of these newcomers, of those harmonious relations that had prevailed for several decades in and around Apple Creek. They just want Indians ousted. Uh, and in some senses, the triumph of what we think of as American democracy, the triumph of Jacksonian democracy in some sense, is what sort of, sort of democracy is destiny. Uh, in this case, in terms of undermining Indian claims, undermining these older arrangements, and ultimately leading to the ouster of these um, of Indian peoples from that region. I guess the the added piece in this is Meriwether Lewis, very briefly, and William Clark for much longer, are the principal territorial administrators after they are rewarded in a sense for their service on the uh, trans on the on the expedition to the Pacific. By, given, by being given territorial authority, Lewis first, and then very briefly because he commits suicide, then Clark for much longer, and then even after he loses the election for governor, because he's seen as being too friendly to Indians, he has to become the architect and overseer of removal. But I would argue that Clark, at least for a time, tries to stand against that enormous pressure, uh, tries to defend, at least in some way, the rights of Shawnee Indians uh, in southeastern Missouri. Ultimately, though, he too has to yield to it um, and becomes, as I say, one of the engineers of Indian removal uh, from this territory. Mm -hmm. And then in the last couple chapters of the book, uh, we, we continue to follow Americans as they settle deeper and deeper into the West. We get to two, what at least I think of as pretty iconic sort of uh, landmarks of the, the traditional mythos, the traditional story of the American West. And, you know, as someone that grew up going to school in the 90s, I loved in, in one of these chapters, you talking about the old Oregon Trail game and how that tells a very specific kind of wish story about uh, the American West. So could you talk a bit about the Oregon Trail and about Chimney Rock in what is today right. Nebraska and how these sort of offer uh, these alternative histories of this place, of Oregon Trail and Western migration? So Chimney Rock is a landmark along the Oregon Overland Trails, the major principal overland trails that run along the Platte River uh, before the before they divide, usually principally between those going to Utah uh, in terms of the Mormon Latter-day Saint migrations or going to California or, or to Oregon, to the Willamette Valley, principally in Oregon in the really beginning in the 1840s uh, and then escalating in great numbers in the 1850s before railroads sort of ultimately take over the sort of classic covered wagon migrations westward, the wagon trains west. Um, and it's, you know, in some senses, the cinematic staple image of those Oregon, of those overland migrations was the circling of the wagons, uh, circling of the wagons against marauding Indians riding around and menacing uh, those uh, caravans. Um, and indeed in the first version of the Oregon Trail computer game, which you re recollect from childhood days, um, Indians played that sort of role as the menacing threat uh, that you had to avoid as you made your choices of how to get your how to make your way to Oregon uh, in 1840s, in the mid 1840s, mid to late 1840s. Um, 
on closer examination, I, historians, and the makers of the Oregon Trail historic games in future editions discovered that in fact, Indians, at least in the early years of, of these migrations, tended to not play medicine roles, that on the Great Plains in particular, um, that um, there was very little violence between Indians and uh, American pioneers, American migrant pioneer trains, um, that, the, that you were much more likely on the Oregon Trail to die as the Oregon Trail game had it of cholera and dysentery, uh, or for that matter, being drowned or accidentally shooting oneself or being shot by one of your own, as opposed to being killed by Indians when you look closer at that. And then sort of trying to look then, how do we, you know, why did we get those cinematic images when the reality um, was quite different in the early years? And again, I think going back to the argument I was making before, so long as Americans were just passing through, um, even as they brought with them enormous biases, prejudices against Indians. It's not like they shed their cultural baggage when they headed west, that the Oregon Trail game invites its players to shed uh, parts of their baggage in order to lighten loads to move west. Well, it's one thing to shed goods. It's another thing to shed your ideas. And Americans certainly didn't shed their ideas about Indians and their, and their biases and but they also learned along the way that rather than seeing Indians necessarily as a threat, they learned Indians provided crucial trade goods and crucial guidance about the best ways to get themselves west. That's not to say there wasn't tension, uh, given the, the, the biases people brought and given also the ways in which Indians resented the ways in which Americans often were passing through their territory and using vital resources without really paying for them. Mm -hmm. um, but still, violence remains very contained through the 1840s. It changes though with the discovery of gold in California, which multiplies the number of Americans by many fold coming across the trail. So therefore multiplies the number, the resources that are being depleted in terms of timber uh, and, and, and bison stock even. It also uh, brings the American army, the United States army, onto the plains in much greater numbers in the 1850s. And that show of force, again, also tends to, um, as, as I argued, reconfigure relations in ways that lead to much more bloodshed and violence in the 1850s than had been the case in the 1840s. Uh, and that happens certainly around Chimney Rock, which becomes then the center place where lots of later Plains Indian warfare will will play out. And this question of violence is also at the center of the last chapter in in the book when you bring us to 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 Dodge City in Kansas, which is one of the towns that I would argue is most associated with the kind of classic American wild west gunslinger mythos storytelling, right? And you kind of surprisingly use the story of Dodge City, this place that again is so closely associated with violence and getting out of Dodge, a place you want to get out from, right? And you use it again as a, 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 another symbol of alternatives, right? right. Of, of Western Concord in a lot of ways. So how do you kind of square this circle then? What does Dodge City tell us about these alternative Western histories? So again, Dodge City, I think, as you point out, there's no place that has become more synonymous um, in history, but in also in myth and metaphor with the West at its wildest, with the sort of old West, wild West, you know, the most violent place. We think of it as the place where shootouts on dusty streets were daily occurrences. And, you know, that this sort of was the exemplar, exhibit A, of, of, as I say, the, the bloodiest of West, and one that still today, as you point out, remains Dodge City in the popular consciousness, even as Westerns are no longer as dominant a genre as they once were. Dodge City still carries considerable cultural balance as a place that we think of, you know, when you, during the Vietnam War, get out of Dodge becomes the, you know, the way sort of you gotta get out of, or during the Iraq, Fallujah, you know, sort of gets likened to Dodge City. You know, we continue to see it in these terms. And yet the reality of Dodge City, I would argue, for a variety of reasons, which is not to say it's the wars that remove Indians from the territory are quite violent and bloody, but the Dodge City that gets a style, and Dodge City, when it is a buffalo hunting town, is, is itself a very wild place. But the Dodge City gets established as a cow town. It's where it becomes the principal cow town for several years in the 1870s into the early 1880s, where the 
Longhorns from Texas get driven up to the railhead depots that are in Dodge City for a time, um, that contrary to the myth, Dodge City, actually both cowboys on the trail in those years managed to get along with one another, despite the fact that theirs is a multi-ethnic workforce in which an eighth or a quarter, depending upon what numbers you believe, uh, are African-American, recently enslaved peoples, or a significant Mexican-American, Mexican component among those cowboys. that, you know, despite this multi-ethnic workforce, uh, those places, those trails remain relatively quiet places in that sense. They're dangerous to be sure, but there, you don't see the kind of inter-ethnic violence that you might expect. Indeed, I would argue that on the trail and in Dodge City, Black lives mattered more than they did most other places in the American West and certainly most places in the American South, to say nothing also of the American North in these years. Um, so there's that irony. And then that contrary to the myth of Dodge City as this place of endless gunfighting, there's relatively contained in significant part because Dodge City, um, even though it has all of the factors that you associate with the West at its wildest, a transient population of young men with access to inebriating agents, there's lots of alcohol, um, and some money to spend when they come, these cowboys, when they come off the trail, um, you know, you have all of the agents in place for what I think sociologists and historians see as that kind of lethal cocktail, and that they're they come armed, but in fact, Dodge City imposes, at least, or tries to impose, the, the enforcement is uneven, some degree of gun, gun control. They have people, there's a sign in the middle of Dodge saying that carrying of firearms is strictly prohibited. And to some extent, at least, at least in parts of town, especially north of the so-called deadline, they, they, they impose a degree of gun control. And to a considerable extent, I would argue it works, that when you look at the homicide rates which are the most easy way of looking at this. Um, they're a lot lower in Dodge City than they are in other places like Tombstone or various other famous Western places where you don't have the same degree of local um, uh, ordinances that contain, you still have lots and lots of drunken disorderliness. Um, you have lots of eye gouging and with people having some knives, you know, they can do damage to one another, but they don't kill each other at the same rates that you see elsewhere. Uh, and there's a lesson there, I think, to be taken away, as well as the fact that throughout all of this, I don't find people talking about any Second Amendment right to carry um, either. Uh, there are also other things that I think, again, we might not take away as good things. There's a certain um, the way in which the fee based law enforcement system worked, you know, that basically people like Wyatt Earp, who's a sheriff briefly in in Dodge City, get paid by the arrest as opposed by, you know, so they have it in their interest to 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 uh, knock their victims out and take them, you know, haul them off to the drunk tank, in a sense, as opposed to shooting first and asking questions later in that sort of classic Western way. So I think there are surprising and important stories to take away from Dodge City that are worth bringing into that contemporary debate. And indeed, I should say that in this book in particular, I did not intend initially Dodge City to be the last chapter. I had originally intended, and I someday do intend to return, to write what would now be volume two, which would take the story to the present. And I have sketched out various chapters, places, and times that I wanted to look at to take the story to the present. Um, because I took the position at the Autry Museum, though, before the book, or as the book was being completed, I decided that I needed to get the book done first um, and then write another volume later. Um, because I knew that my new position at the head of the Archer Museum would cut into whatever time I had to do any research and writing. So I decided to stop the book at Dodge City, um, but I still very much was interested in the ways in which the stories I tell do offer us connections between past and present. Um, that in that sense, I didn't want to write a presentist book, but I did want to write a present-minded book one in which I did want to think about the ways in which the lessons, even as they're compromised and incomplete in various ways, that they still offer us guidance and lessons that we would want to think about as we think about not just the dilemmas of the present, but the challenges of the future. And in that sense, it's a book that in that way was also inspired by the work I do at the Autry, because 
the mission statement of the Autry is to bring together the stories of all peoples of the American West, connecting the past with the present to inspire our shared future. I don't know that the book that I'm that I've written is wholly inspirational, but I do think it is guided and premised on the idea that we do need to think about the ways in which the past can inform the present and shape the future. Yeah. And as we begin to to wrap up and sort of on on that same note, I have two sort of sort of summary or, or or wrap up questions that I want I want to ask as we reflect on on the book here. And the first one's one I've been thinking about a lot during during our conversation. And that is why let, let me ask you in kind of a, a funny, maybe provocative way. So why the need for this book? What I mean is, why have so many of these stories either been undertold or maybe forgotten to an extent or swept under the rug or maybe even just not told in this particular way? Why do you think, uh, 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 well, why do you think this opportunity was there for you to write a book like this highlighting these alternative histories, do you think? So, you know, again, it's interesting in that sense because... On the one hand, as I emphasized, certainly our Western history, the mainstream of Western American history, has really sort of shifted um, you know, from what was once told as a triumphant story of civilization's victory over savagery to one in which uh, we now tell it. What was once a feel-good story has become more of a feel-guilty story, um, and one in which um, as I say, we are trying to grapple with the terrible legacies of colonialism um, and the devastating consequences that Indian peoples suffered, uh, as well as the environmental issues that sort of also accompanied this expansionism. Um, so I'm not in some ways trying to dislodge that history. That said, there is an alternative history. I, I want, don't want to claim more for my own story than there is. I mean, some of it is based on original research that I did and have done in previous books that I repurposed for this book. But a lot of it draws on existing scholarship, but turns it, I think, to a different direction. And I, but, you know, to get back to the larger point, I do think um, we, we benefit from a history that is not simply filled with hopelessness, but that maybe offers us glimpses of more hopeful possibilities. Mm -hmm. um, that I think there is, that it is important for us to uh, mine the past, not just for the, for the follies. Indeed, one of the last things I did at UCLA before I left was work to create and uh, was in getting the, the endowed gift to support uh, the Luskin Center for History and Policy. Um, at UCLA, which was really created to sort of think about how can histor his history and historical research perspective, knowledge, information inform policymakers. Uh, and there, I was really sort of thinking that typically when you're thinking in those terms, it's always about folly, you know, the Barbara Tuckman sort of version that you that I think we tend to bring to the conversation with policymakers. But I also thought, well, maybe there's another side too, where we can learn from another part of history. And this, this, I think, was an understudied part about how do people, in spite of their past, sometimes transcend their tribal enmities. And especially, you know, at this moment, it seems to me as Americans, we need to, you know, we are sort of taught that our differences are irreconcilable, um, that we have no way, you know, that we are destined now for a second civil war. Uh, that, you know, that we have irreconcilable differences that are, 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 you know, in some ways our politics is governed by creating and amplifying those differences. Um, and in some senses, I'm trying to say, well, we have to figure out a way to get along with one another. Indeed, the original title of my book, um, when it was going to go to the present, coming off Rodney King's famous quote at the moment of the L.A. riots was, can we all get along? Um, and I was trying to say, well, we shouldn't so quickly say no. Yeah. Um, and so that is one that I you know, want to sort of ponder. And again, coming from the perspective of someone trying to run a museum and trying to sort of bring people to that museum and give them a history that is both painful and challenging, but also one that maybe opens up new thinking and new possibilities. Um, because again, I wanted to write a, a book and, and the role I now have that is both 
public embracing and future facing. Uh, and I, that's, I think, part of what inspired me to, to take on that project and to take on the job that I now hold at the Archer Museum. Yeah. And then my last question, um, and this is a question that I, I like to ask of all of my guests, and I think you've probably touched a bit on, on your answer throughout today, but just to kind of put a period on the sentence that we, we've been writing here, I'm always interested in having my guests put themselves in the shoes of someone reading this book, and then, you know, a year down the line, maybe five years down the line, thinking back on this book that they have read, reflecting on this book, what do you hope that they have taken away? What's What do you hope would stick with them as they think back on this book that they read further on down the line? Wow, that is a really um, good question to ask to end. And I'm maybe the worst person to answer it in some sense. <laughs> no, seriously, because I think when you write a book, you sort of have to, you let it go. And you know, in some ways readers read a book very differently than you wrote it in some way sometimes. Mm -hmm. um, and how readers read the book 10 years from now might be different from the way the book is read today. Um, you know, in some senses, even the way the book was written, I guess its inception for me was in some ways during the Obama years. Um, and there was a sense of sort of of keep hope alive in that, I suppose, and of sort of, oh, a sense that maybe there was this moment where Americans had transcended, had overcome some of their past, you know, some of what had shaped the American past. Obviously, the moment where the book was completed was quite different. And so already, even just in the, in the timeline in which I wrote the book, I think some of that sense of possibilities um, gets challenged and eroded about how we think about our past and how we think about our present. And look, I often say that although the book is, I meant to be public embracing and future facing, historians are at their worst when they try to forecast the future. Uh, you know, I often say that we historians are much better at predicting the past than we are at forecasting the future, um, which is why we tend to get things right in a sense, because we know how things turned out. Um, and insofar as we really don't know what's to come, and in that regard, you know, it leaves me um, uncertain about how the book will be read and more importantly, how it will be read 10 years from now or how someone who read it today or reads it today will think about it 10 years from now. Other than, again, going back to the things that I said before, at least if they come away thinking that the mainstream is not the only stream mm -hmm. of history, that there are other possibilities and alternatives in play in the past, and that there are also alternatives in play in the present. Um, and if I think if people come away thinking in those terms, I will think that my book um, did what it was supposed to do. I think that's a fantastic answer. And in many ways, that's the power of history, right? Is understanding that the past is complicated. That means that the present is complicated and the future is uncertain, no matter how certain and sure things, things might feel. Um, and then for my, my, my final question, uh, I always like to get a preview from my guests about what they're working on, uh, uh, what they're working on now. This book has not been out for very long. I know it was a long time in the offing and you talked about a second volume somewhere down the line, but I'm curious, Steve, what you've been working on since, either in terms of, of written research or in your work at the Autry as well. Right, so in some ways, look, someday I'd like to write that second volume. I know the chapters that I wanna write. I've already done some research on them and I think they would really be, important in terms of amplifying different kinds of stories and bringing it to the present. Um, recognizing though that at the moment, my primary responsibility is to um, direct the Autry Museum uh, and engage and bring Western history and Western culture stories forward in, in this um, form. That said, you know, one of the principal challenges I have at the Autry Museum of the American West is that the Autry Museum of the American West is located in Los Angeles, California. Um, and it's a place I've been teaching at UCLA for many decades. But one of the challenges I've faced is that when I would teach the History of the American West course at UCLA, um, I soon discovered that most of my students, at least the Californians among them, do not think of themselves as being Westerners. And think of West as a category that is out there and back then, divorced from their here and now, which is interesting as a challenge if you're teaching a course in the American West, but it's even more challenging if you're running a museum about the American West, where you're trying to attract people 
who maybe don't think of themselves as Westerners or don't think of the West as a category that's particularly meaningful and relevant or immediate to them. So one of the things that I'm doing now at the Autry Museum is trying to um, accent what I call the view from here, which is to place, to imagine LA and Southern California, not as outside the West, but in many ways as the Westest West, as the place where the West, um, where many of the issues and challenges that are at the center of Western American histories play out in Los Angeles only more so in exaggerated form, or what happens in Los Angeles doesn't stay in Los Angeles. What happens in Los Angeles then happens elsewhere. That in some ways, in terms of the popular cultural imaginations, LA is the place where the West gets invented. So on all those levels, I'm trying to think about what if we reimagine the way we think about the West, putting LA at the center and thinking about the currents that have shaped this place coming not simply across the continent, moving westward, but coming from the South, from Latin America, coming from across the Pacific, looking in the alternative, in the opposite direction, looking east on what people think of as the West. How does that reframe the way we think about the West? And so that West as viewed from Los Angeles is something that I'm looking to put in place at the Archer Museum as a way to engage our visitors and help them enter into this space. But it's also something I began to think about, what if I wrote a book about the view from Los Angeles or the West from Los Angeles? How would that look different from a conventional history of the American West that tends to work in the other direction. Um, I don't know when I'm gonna write this book exactly, but it's at least in my head. And so, and I hope that um, at the Autry in coming years, we'll have exhibitions that will bring forward some of this perspective. Dr. Stephen Aaron is Professor Emeritus of History at UCLA and is currently the President and CEO of the Autry Museum of the American West in Los Angeles. He's an accomplished scholar of the American West. He's a former president of the Western History Association, and his latest book is Peace and Friendship, an alternative history of the American West, which came out just last year in 2022 with Oxford University Press. Thank you so much for joining me today, Steve. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much. This has really been a wonderful um, interview and I've really enjoyed it.